there's not one single theory. If you take all the, if you take everything as a fact as you look at it, there's not one single thing that stands up on its own. There really isn't. It's mystifying. This is back in 1959 when anything was possible. The thing is, Tim, it comes back to this business of somebody, you know, a committee sitting down and saying, how complicated can we make this story? He said to his wife later, if anything happens to me, look after our son. I think he probably guessed there and then what was happening, that it was that the, the scene was being set. Um, and, you know, there's lots of small things, you know, like I say, they shouldn't even have been on that mountain, so why were they there? And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 9. On this installment of the program, we are finally going to take a look at a case and a place that has fascinated me for quite some time, and I've really wanted to dig into it for ages here on the program, but I was always waiting for the right guest to come along and the right book to come along, and finally it's all come together here on this edition of BOA Audio. Of course, I am talking about the infamous Dyatlov Pass incident and helping us to delve into this mystifying case is our guest, Keith McCloskey, author of the book, Mountain of the Dead, the Dyatlov Pass Incident. Over the course of the next two hours, we are going to look at this truly puzzling story from top to bottom and all points in between. We're going to dig into all the different angles surrounding the Dyatlov Pass mystery. We're going to look at all the various theories. We're going to look at all the various players involved. We're going to look at all of the information that we have on what went down in the mountains of Russia in 1959 and what we really know, what speculation, and what might be fabrication. We're going to do all that over the course of the next two hours, so you don't want to hear me talking much more. But I'm going to give you a little behind-the-scenes look at why I'm talking to you right now. And that is because when I sat down to edit the interview, I was completely distraught to realize that the first four minutes or so of the program had just this butchered audio, this absolutely unlistenable audio. Thankfully, it was only the first four minutes. The rest of the program is pretty much smooth sailing. So I decided to sit down here tonight, tape a new introduction, cut out my lengthy introduction from when I first sat down to talk to Keith. So hopefully that cuts out a large portion of the difficult audio because I knew if I just posted the show as I originally wanted to before I discovered all these problems, people would have listened to it and been aghast and shut the program off after about a minute of this really atrocious audio. So I wanted to kind of ease people into this, let you know I'm going to roll right in now to me asking for the bio background on Keith McCloskey. We'll get that from him. Very bad audio on that. I apologize. But then shortly thereafter, about a minute or so, you'll hear it roll over 
into the clean audio, and then everything, as I said, from there on out is pretty much smooth sailing. So with all that said, and without any further ado, here's my conversation with Keith McCloskey, author of Mountain of the Dead, The Dyatlov Pass Incident. Welcome to VOA Audio. I'm really looking forward to digging into this just absolutely fascinating case. Thank you very much, Tim. I'm pleased to be here. You know, generally we start out on the program here with the bio, the background. Tell folks about who Keith McCloskey is and uh, how did you end up, you know, on the on the path, the Dyatlov Pass, if you will. I've always had a great interest in mysteries and... Um, uh, I've also been quite uh, a student, if you like, um, of Soviet military history, and that's how I came across the story originally. It's such an amazing mystery, really. Um, it really grabbed my attention. I don't know if uh, I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of it, to be honest. It's intriguing stuff, like you were saying. Uh, the slippery sort of mystery, like you said, right? Whenever you get your hands on it. It's one way you think you kind of got it, and then it slips out of your hands because another thing comes up and just have to trying to figure it all out all over For me, anyway, I, I think it's important to keep an open mind on this. Um, in, in the book, you'll read a chapter called Yuri He came up with what I thought was, you know, quite a plausible sort of explanation, but uh, I got a lot of flack for it, if you like. You know, some people said, oh, what a load of nonsense and you know, this is just tripe and all the rest of it. But mm, yeah. um, to me, it was a first-hand account of somebody who lived in the area who tried to explain it uh, through, um, if you like, uh, you know, almost a paranormal theory. And I don't reject anything. You know, if somebody contacts me and says, well, you know, I'd like to put forward this theory, I'll listen to them. Because to me, if you say, no, this is my theory, um, and I'm going to make all the facts fit it, the simple truth is you can't make the facts fit it because there's no one theory that stands up. And I think it's only through keeping an open mind uh, on the whole thing that, you know, an answer will eventually hopefully come. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, well, we'll sort of get towards the end of the conversation, sort of get to what, what possibly could ever come out now uh, this far from the event. But, but uh, to set the stage here, there's so much to dig into. There's so much to talk about. And like I said, I absolutely love the book and, uh, the words I was trying to say really was like you feel reading the book like you're the eleventh man on the trip. You know, if you're oh, Uden's very kind of, thank you. Oh, absolutely, man. I, I, that's how I <laughs> felt. I wasn't on the trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, you know, if you're Uden was the lucky tenth guy to uh, to get away alive, then you're you're the eleventh person on the trip. Sort of just just yeah. you're a part of that crew, and it's really uh, it's compelling stuff to the point where when they all go missing, you kind of you feel like you know you're worried about them. You know, you feel bad for yeah. them. It's really uh, yeah. great stuff. So I guess we'll set the stage here. Let's talk about the, uh, the the expedition here. Let's talk about the players on this expedition, how it all starts. So the, the pre-trip, the before, the set of it all up. Uh, you know, you've got you've got nine folks, ten total with uh, the the guy who turns around and goes back. But yeah. this whole thing was what I thought was interesting to sort of put this into the minds of people. We're talking February, uh, January, late January, February 1959. So. How long ago was that now? I can't do the math in my head. Uh, well, it should be 56, 56 years um, because it's just past the uh, anniversary yeah. of the night they died. It was just over a week ago, which uh, is a pity we couldn't have done the interview you know, nearer that actual day because it would have almost been 56 years to the day. That's true. But, yeah, but uh, as I say, unfortunately, I've been ill. But, um, but yeah. 
it's uh, you know a lot of people might say well um you know what i tried to get over in the book is that this was something that young people of that time you know for them that was if you like their way of letting off steam and enjoying themselves you know you might think well why the hell would you want to trek in 600 miles up to the north of siberia and go into deep mountain snow and basically put your life at risk but it was very very it was called ski tourism and right, it was right. very very popular amongst students and young people of the time and obviously you know you needed to be you need to be very fit to be able to do it um but it was a way of for them of you know a reg living in communist times it was a very regimented and um you know people basically watched you and you know you had to follow the party line literally and uh, for them it was a way of getting away from it all and you know a, a group of young people together just enjoying themselves so that's that's part of the reason they were doing it yeah. um, it was something that they were all involved in they were all very fit uh, Igor Dyatlov himself uh, the the expedition leader had actually made a, a journey up there the previous year to the to the mountain uh, the, the original mountain they were going to Otorton um, but the, you know, it's something that they all enjoyed, and something that they all did virtually every you know every chance they got, they could go away. That the you know ski tourism was a major part of their life. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like uh, you know, it's kind. I liken it kind of like to a to, to spring break here in America. But you know, we're talking 55 years ago in Soviet Russia. This was the version they had of spring break, which is kind of to uh, go hiking up into the mountains. Yeah, well, funnily enough, uh, spring break is a big thing there um, in the university. Uh, that's obviously after the, um, you know, after the winter, but they, they have a spring week or spring break where, you know, it's a chance that they, they, all the youth get together and they have games and, um, you know, athletics, I mean, and, you know, there's sports games. But uh, that, that that was a big thing as well. But you know the opportunities in the Soviet Union for in inverted commas trying to enjoy yourself were few and far between. And if it wasn't approved by the party, basically you didn't do it uh, unless you wanted to run into trouble. Yeah. Okay. So it's uh, just to, just so I just so I can be sound cool to people later down the line. How exactly do you, is it Dyatlov? Yeah, Dyatlov. Okay, yeah, I've always uh, said Dyatlov, but all right, yeah. Dyatlov. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm learning Russian, but uh, I'm, I'm certainly uh, no uh, <laughs> linguistic expert on it, but I think people will understand when we say Dyatlov. There you go. That's how we can yeah. tell if someone really knows what they're talking about. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. You know what I mean? They can say, all right, well, if they, if they say a Dyatlov, then you know they're, uh, they're, they're in the know. Uh, yeah. So... <laughs> So Igor, Igor Dyatlov, he's, and this is the cool part, like I said about the book, I, you know, I always thought just where they died was, the place was called Dyatlov Pass, but he, it's actually named after him now in retrospect, uh, because he was the leader of this expedition, Igor, uh, and there was ten folks, one guy had to turn back, I guess we're, we're sort of like, we'll, we'll sort of go on the trip a little bit with them here and sort of talk about it a little bit, you know, they, it's supposed yeah. to be 22 days, and, and first they have to go, it's it's interesting. They go, you know, to these towns on uh, via rail first, yeah. uh, and slowly, sort of slowly and slowly, get further and further out of civilization, which I thought was really right. yeah. creepy and, and and cool in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, yeah. They they, they went. Um, they, they they took the train north, and uh, they went to um, a city called Serov, 
which was their first stop, and one of the group there got into a bit of trouble mm. because um, he started singing in a railway station. He was arrested by the police you know, <laughs> for basically disturbing the peace. And a lot of people re try and read something into that, but, you know, it's just small town provincial police with nothing better to do than see a bunch of strangers and try and make life a bit difficult for them. But he was released without any charge, and uh, they carried on up to the next town. And um, from uh, Ivdel, they took a, a bus up to a small village called Vizhai, which is now, um, it was a couple of years ago, it was completely burnt down in a, one of the many forest fires they have up there. And from there they took um, an open-air truck, uh, just basically a, a Russian military truck, up to um, where they started their journey by, by foot, you know, yeah. to, to make the overland part of their trip. So it was. Uh, it took a few days to get up there, and um, it, it's the whole distance from the city up to where they were going. It's about 550 to 600 miles. So it's it's a good bit out. Yeah, I mean that's. I don't even. I don't think I could. I, I'm certain actually that I could not do this. Even even travel. <laughs> even, well, even yeah, you know it's, yeah. just, uh, it's it, that's really uh, 500 miles a, a long ways, folks. It, the thing is, it's um, the, 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 it's the last part of the journey. You know, it, it's. Uh, I mean, let's face it. People talk about Siberian winds and winter. You know, it, it's pretty. It's, it's a bit like Alaska, probably. Uh, you know, at the time of the year they were doing it, when they were trudging along, as the snow got deeper and the weather got worse. You know, they, they were they were in single file and and making the way through snow that was very, basically two to three feet deep. Mm. You know, and they, they the way they do that is you have one person in front, and he sort of basically beats down the snow as he goes along, he or she. Then when they're tired, they go back to the back of the line. The next person then gets the worst of it, you know, so that the person at the end of the line has got an easier path, if you like, because the eight, eight or nine people in front of you have basically made the path for you, and mm. that's how they'd get their rest. So, I mean, it was it was really hard work. Oh yeah, this pictures from the expedition that were found later uh, in the camera. I think and uh, yeah, this you know the picture right before they go disappearing a couple of days before is like treacherous. It's like oh my god, I don't even know you know. It's a really uh, it's like I said, it's remarkable stuff that people were even doing this or even wanted to do it. So Diatlov's yeah. he's leading this expedition. Another the other there's a, there's eight other people. Well, ten if you count Yuri Yudin. Let's sort of I keep I keep. <laughs> I keep mentioning Yuri, so let's uh, let's tell the story of Yuri and sort of wrap up his uh, end of the whole story. Well, but, I mean, he he, uh, he was so friendly with everybody in the group, and um, it, but he was basically he had to turn around and go home because uh, he um, he had pains in his legs and his back, which were aggravated, if you like, by the cold because. When they um, set out from the village, when they went on the truck, it was an open-air truck, and then basically it was a biting wind, and that really didn't do him any good at all. But he, he kept going um, until they got to the um, abandoned geologist village because he had promised the university that he would collect a load of samples for them of the rocks up there. Um, it, you know, he... he uh, 
he felt he had a commitment to them. Yeah. He promised that he'd bring all these samples back because he really wanted to turn around a lot sooner than that. So he he stuck with it, even though he was basically in agony at the end. And um, after they spent the night at the abandoned geologist's uh, village, which basically was about 20 old ramshackle huts, more, nothing more than that. Right. Um, he spent the night there, and then the next day, that was the 28th of January, he turned around and said goodbye to everybody and then made his way back. Now, so, just for just so I can kind of keep track in my mind, the... How how long did it take from when they actually departed originally to uh, the the night of February first? Like how long was that journey? Well, they they left on the twenty third of January. Okay. That's the date. That's the date they left um, Sverdlovsk. So about ten days. Yeah, about that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, well, just just coming up to a week, uh, ten days, I suppose. Yeah. And approximately yeah. when uh, did they? Uh, actually, you know, probably from the journal, but uh, when did they leave that last place that was the huts and stuff and just start out on foot? Wow. Uh, that, that was the twenty eighth of um, the, the, where Yuri Yudin said goodbye to them was the twenty eighth of January. Okay. So taking that up to the that was only just a couple of days, a few days away from that the night that they died. Yeah. So really, I mean, although the, there was journals kept and all the rest of it, you know, there's all sorts of talk about alterations in the journals and you can't trust them and blah blah blah. Up, up to the up to the date, the 28th of January, everything can be verified because people had seen them. Yuri Yudin was with them. Mm. Once he said goodbye. Really, nobody knows what happened. Whatever happened, happened between there and that night. Right. Okay. And, and sorry, and, and depending oh. which theory you want to follow, <laughs> you know, before we start deviating into all the different uh, routes, because if you say they they died, you know, on the night of the first and the second of February, um, you know, according to the journals, which a lot of people dispute that they're real anyway. Um, you know, you can take that particular view. You can also take a view that something happened to them almost immediately after Yuri Yudin left. It's, it all becomes a very big gray area once he goes. Mm, exactly. Yeah, the door is open then for it any, is. anything it can is. happen, essentially. Yeah, uh, once absolutely. Yuri. Yeah. Um, okay, so we, we've established Dyatlov. He's like this respected, uh, he's done these trips before. He's sort of like, he's the player of the whole thing. And, uh, the yeah. other guy, I think that's, uh, I kind of only wrote down a few uh, of the key people I thought, and that's, you know, obviously with all due respect to, to all the folks who passed away, some of them were yeah. more players in the story, if you they will. They were, yeah. Um, and they, the, the, the one I think that we should talk about, because he comes up a lot, and that's uh, Zolotarev. Yeah. He's yep. the one who uh, a lot of folks focus on, so, uh, and it's, it's, it, he stands out amongst the rest. So let's uh, sort of fill in a little background on him. Well, he's a he's an odd character. Um, when I say odd, he he's totally different to the rest of them. He was it was actually the night of his thirty eighth birthday when he died. But he's almost old enough to be the father of some of them. You know, when you think they're you know twenty, twenty one, twenty two, nineteen, he he's thirty eight. You know, he, he's twice their age almost. Right. Um. But and, and he's. You know, he doesn't really fit into the group, if you see what I mean. From the point of view, he's not from the same background. He'd fought in the Second World War, um, you know, on, on the Eastern Front, you know, which was pretty hellish fighting, right. you know, against the, the Nazis. And he had, uh, he'd, he'd reached the rank of sergeant, and he had um, medals, uh, decorations for close combat fighting, 
which if you can earn decorations for that on the Eastern Front, you're obviously something pretty special. Um, so he was certainly no wimp or wuss. Um, but it, it, it's odd that he's he's in there with them. You know, he, he just doesn't seem to fit in the group. And then this sort of leads on to other sort of theories, is that he was a KGB agent, and, you know, we'll discuss some of the rest of it later yeah. on. But, you know, he, he's such an oddity, if you like. He's more worldly wise than the rest of them hmm. um the part of the story is so people would say well why was he there you know it, right i was just going to have it, that as a follow-up yeah just to yeah he, he was um you know he was in ski tourism just as the, the rest of them were and before he'd he'd come over to where lovsky had been in the altai mountains he'd been working there as a if you like as a an instructor or you know a guide hmm. um, and the altai mountains are you know a good thousand or eight hundred to a thousand miles away to to the east from Sverdlovsk. So you say, well, why, why was he? Why did he bother coming back? You know, and and how did he get tied up with them? But it seems apparently one of the the lines of thought is that he was quite hot on uh, one of the females. There's two females in the group, right. Luda and Zena, we'll call them. Um, but both are attractive girls. But Zena really was something. You know, sort of, uh, I suppose we'd say these days quite hot looking. And, uh, he had a, you know, a d the, the, the story is that he had designs on her, if you like, mm. even though he was nearly twice her age. And that that's why he tagged along. Um, you know, whether or not you want to follow that line, I don't know, but it's, it's one of the lines because one of the theories is, you know, about what happened to them is there was a big punch up because mm. there was, she was actually going out with, Igor Dyatlov, and she'd also been going out with another member of the group as well. So, you know, there's three males who are, if you like, interested. Right, exactly, yeah. She was, uh, I had her here as one of the major players because uh, she seemed like yeah. she, she was very, uh, there was, she, the, her, her charisma left off the page just from Oh, yeah, yeah, stuff. very much so, yeah. A highly intelligent girl and, you know, the, the tip for great things, uh, you know, uh, had she lived, uh, there was talk of her probably even making the council of ministers and all the rest of it, but a very charismatic girl, hmm. you know, um, and that comes out because when they're, they're making their way north, um, you know, they stop off in uh, a couple of places and, you know, she goes to a school and all the kids want to talk to her, you know, she, she sort of drew people to her and all, obviously, as I say, plenty of male interest in her as well, so, you know, a very charismatic girl. Hmm. And uh, like you said, there was, there was, if not a love triangle, certainly a love quadrangle going on there. Yeah. There was a lot of, yeah. you know, a lot of guys, uh, the, the guy-girl ratio wasn't great on this trip. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> the other woman on the trip uh, is Luda, and I thought that she was kind of interesting in a way, because uh, you make a point in the book, her personality is very distinct. You know, she's very, uh, had sort of a pro, pro-communist, pro pro-motherland uh, attitude, and uh, yep. Yeah, was kind of interesting, especially because later on, uh, you know, it's, I guess at no point in sort of uh, worrying about spoilers or anything. Later on, she, when they find her body, she has her tongue cut out, and uh, you mentioned yep. in the book that she had a reputation for being sort of backtalker. You know, well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the story about her is that if she thought you were a fool, she'd tell you. Hmm. She wasn't afraid to speak her mind, and it was Yuri Yudin himself who said that it was ironic that. Uh, 
she was the one that had her tongue missing, and uh, she, you know it was ironic that she was the most outspoken. Right, exactly. And she did. She didn't suffer idiots gladly. You know, if she thought you were a fool, she would tell you to your face that she thought you were a fool, or if you're talking nonsense. Yeah. And Yuri, you didn't confirm that as well. So you know, he said that. Uh, she she was very very forthright in her opinions and not really afraid of anything or anybody. So, you know, you can draw your own conclusions as to what happened to them and why her tongue was missing. Yeah, exactly. That's what stood out to me. Where it was like, yeah. like you said, she didn't suffer any fools, and then uh, later on you see what becomes of her, and you wonder if there's yeah. a connection. It's kind of uh, one of the spookier parts of the story. Yeah, yeah, and horrendous injuries as well. You know, so mm. smashed in chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's four of the people. The other five, uh, uh, there's not. I, I don't think anything really particularly stood out except for uh, the two guys, uh, Alexander uh, Kolevatov and yep. uh, Yuri. Uh, there's a long one here. Krivonish. Well, there's Doroshenko and yeah. there's Kri- uh, Krivonishenko, um All highly intelligent people. Uh, one of the oddities in the rest of the group is, um, and this is French, not mm, Frenchman, yeah. Russian, is uh, Thibault, as he's called, to make it easier, Nikolai Thibault Brignol. He, he was the son of a French communist, and uh, he had been born in the camps, you know, the gulag. Mm. His father was, uh, he'd come to live in, in uh, Russia, you know, he'd been a French communist. And um, his father obviously fell foul of the regime, if you like, as just about everybody was doing at some point. And um, he was executed and uh, he, he was a bit of a, uh, again, another, I mean, he didn't necessarily stand out personality-wise, but he... He wasn't one who fitted in as easily as the rest of them, if you see what I mean, because he he was different. You know, yeah. he was he was basically, I suppose you could say, half French and half Russian. Mm. Um, he also had access to, uh, you know, the Soviet Union was a difficult place to get books and magazines from outside the Soviet Union, but he was always able to get hold of them. So he had sources whereby he could get, if you like, illegal literature. Nice. So, but um, the reason I but, yeah the rest the rest of them were you know just was well, just your average Soviet student you know right. was uh, intelligent enough a um, couple of them were uh, working in the nuclear industry that's what I was uh, going to mention yeah it seems like there, was, there yeah. was sort of a slight I think those two guys I mentioned I may be mistaken though the two guys with yeah. the K with the last names yeah Krivonishenko and Kolovatov yeah they were the ones who but, seemed like particularly more tied in with uh, they were kind of moving out of the university ranks and into into the government it seemed like or they were doing research or something like that right yeah that's right down at Chelyabinsk uh, which is um, well it still is a closed city uh, there's uh, you know uh, nuclear facilities there where they're working. There was a big accident um, in 1957 in uh, near Chelyabinsk, a place called Kishtim, and there was quite a, a serious nuclear accident there, and um, they, they would have been there at the time. Hmm. So, you know, people read, you know, things into that because, you know, the, the obviously there's nuclear weapons, um Secrecy involved, sure. Yeah, I mean the stories of spies and all the rest of it being responsible. One of one of them was maybe meeting up with somebody to pass over nuclear material, and you know, it, 
it's a bit of a long shot, really, to say that. I mean, I know they have that background, but they were highly intelligent people, you know, with degrees in physics and this kind of thing. And uh, you could say, well, they would have been working there anyway, whether they went up into the mountains or not, you know. And if you're going to meet a spy, why go up into, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, the middle of bloody nowhere and <laughs> uh, just to give them some uh, secrets, you know, when you think a street corner might be easier. Sounds like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's, we've kind of painted the picture here a little bit about who these folks are. Are. And um, yeah. tell me, um, I had this later in the notes, but it bears mentioning now because, uh, like I said, I really loved how informed the book is on these personalities and their and, and their origin and their early journey up there and stuff. So, but you were saying now that some people have, uh, you know, they have issues with the journal. So, talk a little bit about the journal because that provides so much information uh, to the case. Well, yeah, the, 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 they all kept diaries, um, but the main uh, journal was one which each person of the group would take turns in writing and, you know, to say, well, you know, we're, we're here today and all the rest of it. I mean, the last entry, and it was actually made by Igor Dyatlov on the night of the 31st of January. Uh, it wasn't written in the following day. Um, but that that was meant to, if you like, give a a record of the whole trip and the thing is, you know, it'd be the automatic place to look to see if you you know if you want to find out what's what happened um, or what was going on. That that would be the one place you'd look in to say, well, whatever happened, there might be a clue in here. But right. uh, the view of um, uh, Yuri Konsevich, uh, he he's the man who keeps the memory alive. He runs the foundation. Uh, the Diatlov Foundation in Ekaterinburg, um, he said that there was numerous changes and, you know, rubbings out, if you like, of the pencil in the diary that, um, you know, he, he thinks the diary's been altered to fit the facts. Hmm. Now, where... not the only one. Well, that's, there's two, I got two questions here. First, where, what, what, where is the diary now? We know? Well, the the thing is, a lot, a lot of the material is held by the foundation, you know. So the, the the but the diary was kept by the police, from what I believe, um, along with uh, the tent, because you see, the tent is something else, uh, you know. That that's if you like almost the main piece of evidence, and that's disappeared. Nobody knows where it is. Interesting. But like, if, um, let's say you and I, let's say I won the lottery tomorrow and I had just endless, uh, you know, endless funds, and I called you and I was like, I need, let's go find this diary and look at it and see if we can look at what maybe we can find something in the actual diary that that maybe no one knows about. Uh, could we even do that, or is it like so? No, really, we? no. Well, you see, I, I've suggested, you know, the, the, there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, I'm going to come on to something in a minute that's cropped up from the the latest. Uh, They've just had the latest convention. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I said, well, look, why don't we just pay? Uh, you see, there's a file missing. They say that there's still a file that hasn't been released. And I said, well, surely, you know, the way things work, um, I'm not saying it's a corrupt country or anything, but, you know, money usually talks. And I said, well, why not say, well, to somebody who might be able to influence things, well, here's a bit of money. Can you let us have a look at this? And the the, the, the real feeling is that all you'll end up with is a forgery. Oh, really? That, that's the, Well, that's what I was told. 
Even, for know, the, even uh, to see the diary, though, not the file. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you could say, well, okay, if we could have it. There must be ways you can test it to the... You know, to test the authenticity and the age and all the rest of it, but but then you see, I mean, we we've got extracts of the diary. You know, right, you right. might be able to say, um, you know, well, there was a crossing out here, but who's to say they didn't cross it out? You know, that's the trouble. Everything seems to go around in circles. You can say, well, this date was changed here. They could say you could say, well, Krivonishenko was doing the the entry that day and he got the date wrong. Hmm. You know, yeah. there's nothing in it that says that, you know, we were we we're being stalked by <laughs> yeah, a strange yeah. group. No, that's the problem, you know. Um, yeah. And, and any any alteration or any change, you could say, well, you know, they did it because they, they, they wanted to rewrite something else or whatever. So, you know, you, it may not be, a, if you like, the, the hand of the KGB or a hmm. malign influence or whatever. Uh, I mean, all the diary entries don't say much. I mean, one one telling thing in the diary entry, um, I think it's uh, old um, Krivonishenko had, had a hellish temper, apparently. Yeah, I was going to ask um, you about that, yeah. Yeah, well, he, he exploded with rage when he was asked to sleep on the floor again. Uh, he, he did it in the, uh, you know, in Ivdel. He sort of slept on the floor, and when they asked him to do it again, you know, he... he, he literally exploded with rage um, and uh, you know had an effect on the whole group and the following day there was one line entry in the diary you know obviously this you know you know if you've got one person in a group of nine or ten people you know especially with a hellish temper it, it can have an effect on everybody else around them you know, oh, there was just one, one entry that day you know it just sort of basically spoke about the journey and that was it you know it wasn't so filled with we all had a good laugh today and somebody pushed somebody else into the snow or whatever you know it's almost as if you could see the subdued atmosphere coming out in the diary yeah no one wanted to listen to the mandolin that day no that well yeah <laughs> beautifully put <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly sums it up um okay so but Part of me just, I, I'm kind of hooked on this just a little bit, so maybe, so so we don't know actually where this thing is. Because I no. know that it, the smoking gun's not in it, but it, but to me it's like an artifact of awesome importance, and it would be really cool if we if it was on display somewhere that people could look at it, but it sounds like that's just not, we don't even know really where it is. It's somewhere. No, really, no, no. I mean, to be honest, I'd rather see the tent. Hmm. Um, because uh, I'm, I'm hoping to, to go back in August and... Um, do a follow-up book, and I'd love to have seen the tent because I've been studying picture the picture of it, uh, you know, where they've re-erected it and, um, after they brought it down from the mountain. And when you look at the slashes in the tent, you know, uh, some of it uh, it doesn't make to me it doesn't make sense because there's a large square being cut. Um, you might say, okay, well, there's a load of people who've got to get out quickly. But if if there was this blind panic, you know, I mean, put yourself in that position. There's something life-threatening. I mean, are you going to take several seconds to make sure you cut out a perfect square? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think if it was me and I had a sharp knife in my hand, I'd be blindly slashing at it trying to get out. But it looks to me almost as if, some of the cuts are, you know, as if somebody stood there and said, oh, well, let's make out that they 
made their way out of the tent, you know, so they cut a careful square, you know, which isn't a complete square, so it falls down, and there's a few other cuts in it that look as if somebody's taken their time over it, you know, it, yeah. it, it doesn't look right to me, and that, that, that's the thing I'd rather look at, but, but again, nobody knows where that is. Another thing that's gone missing is, uh, it's something about missing right from the get-go, and that was, they, they kept a, an alternate journal of sorts, a tabloid, uh, sort of a faux newspaper, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that was sort of more of like their jokey, uh, you know, their Charlie Hebdo. Yeah, the uh, old Thornton Times, yeah. I mean, uh, that was, uh, as you say, a bit of a joke, and we have a, a copy, you know, a copy's been made of that. Um, oh, okay, you know, I the, thought the, that was just the, gone. Yeah, well, yeah, but, I mean, we, we have the copy, and, oh, okay. you know, the, there's... You can see the reference. We now know that snowmen exist and people read, you know, things into that about a yeti and all the rest of it. But, it, you know, it could be just more of a joke than anything else. Okay, so I thought that I thought that we never knew what was in it, but we do. Okay. Oh, no, we do. Yeah, okay. yeah, we do. All right. So we've set the stage here. We've brought everybody up to, uh, to theoretically February 1st when all hell breaks loose. Um, and then I guess you, you've already you, – you're, you're great in – in timing here with my nose, because here I have tent is slashed. Um, now, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but clearly there are experts and stuff. So they know for sure that it was slashed from the inside out and not from the outside in, right? Well, that's what they say. How how they work that out, I don't quite know. Right, but I couldn't tell you if you showed me. No, I, I well, I couldn't either. And, um, I mean, it's just one of the things I'm going to be querying when I go over, but... Uh, Presumably, there must be a way you can tell maybe from the the cutting of a knife. And I suppose if somebody was going to slash it, they'd say, well, all right, well, you go in the tent now and make out as if you're slashing your way out, you know. Right, right. Well, I guess but the, the, the thing that sticks with me is because uh, if it was, you know, if, if, there's, if there's certain that it was slashed from the inside out, then it eliminates a whole bunch of possibilities of someone approaching the tent or doing something, you know, like that. Yeah, uh, we never really can uh, be sure of that. So I don't even know where to begin because we don't really even know what happens that night. But what one thing that stood out to me was that it seems like from what we gather, from what we can understand, I guess that's probably the best way to start, really, from what we know or what we think we know happened that night. Something yeah. happened. They slashed their way out of the tent. Then they traveled in a single-file line. Uh, yeah. A walking pace, which this, this yeah. I think really stands out as a critical part of the story because it doesn't make any sense. No. If if they were in a, a mad dash to escape the tent, why then walk away from the tent without any provisions? Uh, you know, let's let's just start there and sort of try and unbundle this. What do you make of that? Well, it, it, to me, it's a glaring discrepancy. Um, they're, they're, they're walking away. Uh, I mean, okay, don't forget it's two to three feet deep of snow as well, but even so, you'd expect, you wouldn't expect single file either. You'd expect them to kind of spread out and and run, you know, I mean, you'd see that there would be, you know, people tripping and falling over, but it seems to be a, a kind of an orderly descent, and it said with people with line, the odd pair of tracks coming out from the line and then coming back into it, which, again, you know, having a bit of a suspicious nature, that looks to me as if, you know, the scene is being set. And they said, okay, right, well, now you walk down to the bottom there to where the trees are, 
uh, go off you go, nine of you in a line, and just to make it look good, somebody wander out every once in a while, because if you're in a mad panic, I mean, you wouldn't even think of running as a straight line, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. And to try and sort of wrap my mind around this, the listener's mind around this, do we know when the tent is slashed, when the escape happens, or the attempt to escape happens, do we have any idea sort of like what time of day this may have been? Because the difference between it being at one in the morning and one in the afternoon is huge, because, uh, you know, there's such a difference in visibility and everything. Do we, have, do we have any idea, really, any speculation about maybe what time of yeah. day all this went down? It, it, it's, about two, it's about two to three hours, probably three hours after the, the tent has been pitched, which is when it was getting dark. You know, we're thinking nine o'clock in the evening, maybe okay. ten, night time, when they're almost going to get ready to hunker down for the night. It's in that time frame. All right. Okay. So we're talking. Because, well, sorry, one of the last photo, the 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 last photo shows them pitching the tent that night, hmm. and it, it's you can see it's getting dark. So they they pitch the tent. It takes a little while. They get into the tent. They have something to eat. And uh, then basically they're sitting around getting ready to to settle down for the night. Okay, so so I'm trying to paint the picture here, trying to put myself in this position, in this situation. And so then something, I guess if we're just going by what we know, what we think we know, and uh, based on the official version, we'll say, uh, you know, then something happens, they make this escape. But then what adds another layer to this story is they're found, the bodies start being found uh down the line here, but the first bodies are found a mile away, so theoretically yeah. they would have had to have left that tent in the dark and then then gone a mile away. Yeah. Which seems like that's a vast distance to go. I mean, it, it is, yeah. yeah. So that's another part that really troubles me. Well, you know, it is. It's a hell of a distance. Um, it, it, some people explain it away by the the fact that they're trying to get away from what they think is an avalanche. You know, that's one of the theories. But, um, you know, if there's an avalanche, then why the orderly descent? You know, right. if you think, bloody hell, you know, there's a wall of snow going to hit me, you know, thousands of tons of it, I'd better run as fast as I can because, all right, you're going to run down the mountain, you're not going to run up it, and you're not going to run to the side because the avalanche is going to come down after you. But it doesn't explain the orderly descent of it. Uh, I can understand that if there's an avalanche, they want to get away from the tent to the bottom of the mountain, or at least get you know as far away from the mountain as they can, which is why they go to the tree line. But it, it doesn't also explain why they stay at the tree line, because uh, I was over in... Uh, Lithuania uh, the year before last with a mountain survival expert who, you know, we were doing the Dyatlov story for um, uh, the Discovery Channel, and he said to me that he, he couldn't understand why they didn't go into the trees for shelter. You know, even if there was an avalanche, the trees would afford you protection from the, the snow that was coming. You know, there were big cedar trees. Yeah. So why stay where they were? It could be that they got there and thought, well, okay, there doesn't seem to be an avalanche. Uh, maybe we'll start heading back up shortly, back up to the tent. You know, it, that's a possibility. Hmm. Well, that's the other part. So I'm trying to figure out, like I said, put myself in the minds of these folks in the situation they're in. Are they skilled enough where if they 
travel this mile away? Are they skilled enough to be able to find their way back? Because the whole idea, like, maybe they got lost somehow in the process of escaping from something. Um, that's, I guess, my question here. What do you think? Well, it's possible, that, but, uh, you know, the the they're skilled people. But, you see, one of the big mysteries of the whole thing is what they were doing there in the first place because that wasn't on their route, that mountain. Yes, yes. And these are people who are supposedly highly skilled in, well, I mean, we'd call it orienteering over here, map reading. Igor Dyatlov had done the journey the year before. It was daylight. So how do you find yourself where you're not supposed to be, you know, for people who this was the highest level of complexity, as they call it, highest level of difficulty. So how 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 did you wander off your route when you're so near to you know, to to your home goal, if you like. Mm, yeah. Um, so that that isn't explained either. Uh, but would, again, which comes into the other theories, you know, of uh, something happening to them. But um, so it's not explained what they were. You know, how how did they get lost in the first place? Um, it's it's possible it was dark that night. The weather the weather was bad. That you know maybe they had difficulty finding their way back. But you'd think they could at least maybe have followed the tracks. But bearing in mind that it was. You know, it was cloudy, there wouldn't be much light and all the rest of it. Uh, they did light a fire, so they, they they could have had some light. But the thing is, they weren't very well dressed. Right. So the cold would have been attacking them, well, would have been started to attack them from the moment they left the tent. Exactly, because this is like intense temperatures as well. Like you said, three feet of snow. So, I mean... Uh, yeah, that, minus 26, yeah. Because, you, you know... You have to put yourself into the minds of these people if this is really happening, and it's like they seem to be acting in a lot of paradoxical ways. Yeah. Um, because even, you know, if you think you're going to have to get the, get the hell out of there as fast as possible, like you still put your shoes on, man. I mean, that just seems like that's just human nature, so I don't get that. That really mystifies me. No, too. I mean, uh, and that's a crucial point, isn't it? Because you need your shoes on in, in that sort of place. You know, you, 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 I mean, you're risking certain death without them. Which comes back to what was it that drove them out? What what was so life threatening that you're you're not even thinking what you're doing? You know you're, you're running to get away from it. Except they weren't running. Exactly. Uh, some somebody's put forward. There's been a couple of theories put forward, which I've got on my website that it could have been they'd all been blinded. You know that there's this talk of the lights in the sky. Uh, maybe they were blinded and they had to try and get away quickly, so they tried to follow each other hand on shoulder, you know, like they used to do in the First World War, uh, soldiers blinded by mustard gas. That, you know, they, they, they needed to get away, but that's the, they had to do it slowly because they'd been blinded. That, that's a possibility. But even so, you know, <laughs> Put a coat on. I think, if, I think if you're in a blind panic, you know, and even if you were blind, wouldn't you just keep running? I don't know. You know, it's uh, never having been blinded. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, and had to say a life-threatening situation. Yeah, but, but to me, you just run. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and, and you know and, and whatever drove these people. It seemed to do it universally in a sense because uh, it wasn't like one person. It wasn't like one person forgot their shoes or whatever. They all did, you know. They all. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. it's all very uh, perplexing. A lot of the, I'm sort of picking at <laughs> sort of picking at the things that really stood out to me. So so to continue the the narrative in a way here now, they're ostensibly they're a mile away now. 
I'm going to jump around here in a sense just because I'm trying to like put this all together from how it all might have gone down. So we know two are found at the tree. Three yep. are found crawling back to the camp. Well, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Right. So, but then later, the other four are found at a different location. How do we think this went down, I guess, sequentially is what I'm saying. I mean, it's almost as if you've got four that have been, you know, seriously injured, if you like. Hmm. Two of them very, very badly. That's Luda and Zolotarev. Um, you know, there's broken bones and all the rest of it, and, and they're in a pretty bad way. So the the thinking is that the, the, they had um, a kind of a den made for them. Um, and then the others thought, well, maybe let's try and light a fire. Um, that doesn't go very well. So three of them think, well, let's try and get back to the tent and get, you know, some more clothes and materials and, you know, more light and what have you, right. you know, stuff to try and keep them alive, and they don't make it. But the, the first query I have with that is, well, if you're going to do that, why make the fire so far away from the people that you're trying to, you know, if you like, with, with the, the worst injured, why not make the fire closer to them? Because well, it was 75 meters away, there's plenty of trees around and wood. Hmm. So it, it doesn't make sense that they're so far away uh, from them. Why not stay closer to them? We don't necessarily know if the if the final four that are brutally injured, if they were injured at the, at the time of the escape or if something might have happened in between, in the interim, uh, no. later on down the line. Uh, I mean... <laughs> There's theories that they were injured up at the tent and, you know, that they managed to make it down to the bottom. But, you know, it's, if you like, the trouble is, you see, although it talks about the footprints that go down, once the tent was found, there was nearly 40 people converged on it immediately. Right. So, you know, um, there's one, the first guy to really start taking it apart, a guy called Kisilov, he he said, well, how can you even say that they were in a straight line, the, the footprints, and how can you say they were walking? Because um, when they found the tent, don't forget, they didn't expect to find dead bodies. Right. They right. just found the tent, and they thought, well, they're obviously somewhere nearby. So there wasn't that kind of imperative, if you like, to let's preserve it, you know, because something bad's happened. So we can, you know, try and work out what's happened. Everybody just started tramping all over the place. And I think a lot of what he says is, is pretty good because, you know, I don't think anybody took any real notice of the, 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 the footsteps at first. You know, they thought, well, we found the tent, let's follow the footsteps. But almost immediately more people were arriving, you know, and coming up and pretty soon the footsteps were all being walked over. Right, right. You know, and it, and it was two days as well before they found the first bodies. So, technically speaking, the footsteps should have led straight to them. Hmm, that's true, yeah, and they didn't, so that's kind of a yeah, confusing part yeah. of it, too. So, we don't, yeah, exactly. A lot of this, we talk about, like, the sort of these, it's an incident sort of like a Roswell type of thing, where, you know, there's all, yeah. there's all kinds of, we don't know exactly what the hell's going on on the scene of the situation when it all goes down, because uh, yeah. it's all very, very, very muddied at this point. And like you said, the search parties arrive there, they mess it up even worse. So this is 1959, folks, so this is not... Like CSI, like you see on TV no. nowadays. <laughs> Anything but. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's the opposite. So, so they find two of them dead at the tree. Three are crawling back. It takes a couple of months later till they find the other four folks, and they have brutal injuries. So that's that's kind of the 
that's kind of the base of the whole thing. Um, you know, no one knows why they ran out of the tent. No one knows why they tried to escape the tent or, or, or escape the scene. No one knows why they were a mile away. No one knows what injuries happened to these folks. Yeah, or when. Or when, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it does seem like the final four, because they had some clothes from the other three folks, from the other five folks, that it seems yeah. like they, they lasted a little bit longer. Yeah. And then they're discovered by, well, I guess we've taken it up to sort of what went down that night, we think. We don't know exactly, obviously, but we've sort of brought the story to there. Then yeah. it's interesting that it takes, it stands to reason, and I, you know, you, can, you can't write fiction better than uh, real life. It's, no. you know, it takes, it takes like weeks for anyone to even know what, that these folks are gone or anything, which makes the whole thing even, even sort of uh, more tragic in a way. Yeah, I mean, you've got to allow a bit of slack there from the point of view that... Um, they should still be on the trip, so no <laughs> the, the, Yeah, you know, bad weather, delayed, they're all highly skilled, blah, 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 you know. Um, but the, again, there's a, you know, Yuri Yudin mentioned the fact that a rumor was started even before they were found that they were trying to escape to the West. But you think, well... He felt as if, you know, the, the characters were being blackened at the university. And a lot of people were quite angry about it. But if you're going to escape to the west, would you go up into deeper Siberia? You know, if it was me, I'd be heading, you know, south to the warm water or something right. rather than in, into the, you know, the worst, most inhospitable conditions you can find to try and escape. Yeah. It, it didn't make a lot of sense. But, um, you know, the, but the, there's a suggestion there that the authorities are behind these rumors. You know, in other words, the authorities already knew what happened to them. Hmm. Well, there's a part here later on that we'll get to. I guess now we can kind of get into the theories, right? I mean, that's just, yeah. we've, we've set up the whole story now. And there's, uh, there's no shortage of theories. That's. <laughs> oh, no, there's not. And there's new ones coming out all the time. Um, well, I guess before we, before we dive into the theories, there's one, one thing I want you to talk a little bit about. And it does tie into the theories and stuff. So, uh, it's not completely off the beaten path. But I've told, I learned about these two phenomena in the book, and I've told people about them because they're just so unsettling and so creepy. Uh, paradoxical undressing and terminal yeah. borrowing behavior. Just two yeah. creepy things that are just like, you, you hear about it, and you go, oh, geez, gives me the shivers. So I guess yeah. talk about these two phenomena that happen to people when they're freezing to death. Well, I mean, the, the paradoxical undressing has been put forward by a number of people because they were wearing different clothes, you see. Uh, for instance, um, you know, the, the two guys that were found first were almost naked, um, but they were found side by side, and Yuri Yudin had given his shirt to one of them, um, but that shirt was found on Igor Dyatlov. So what it suggests is that they, they those two died first, of the cold, if you like, you know, they were found, there was burn marks on their, uh, their hands and their feet where, you know, they were losing, you know, the feeling in, in their limbs, basically. Yeah. Um, but they reckon the, 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 the paradoxical undressing is where, uh, when you, when you're starting to freeze to death, your, your, your body tries to protect the inner organs, if you like, you know, the body, basically your heart and the, the vital organs right. to keep you alive. And it's more or less says, well, goodbye to everything else that's that's out there. 
it's trying to keep the body alive, but eventually it reaches a stage where it virtually gives up, and then the blood flows back out to the rest of the body, and um, the body, if you like, becomes overheated with this rush of blood going back out to all all extremities again, and and you get so hot, people start taking their clothes off. But at this point, you're also disorientated, and you're not far from death when that happens. Uh, the terminal burrowing is, is is like when the body is in the final stages. You're actually very close to death at that point, and the cold is returning, and you're trying to actually burrow into the ground or burrow into something for warmth, and your body is actually doing it unconsciously. Oh. And the, the, there's some sort of thought that maybe this is what was happening with the four of them, you know, in in the den. But the thing is, when it, when you look at it all, it's um, you know the, the the two guys that were found without clothes on. People are saying, well, you know, they, they probably died first. Um, they didn't have enough clothes to go around, so you know it's a natural enough reaction to think, well, you don't need it anymore, so I'll have it because I want to stay alive. Right. You know, and and, they, and the bodies were laid side by side as if, you know, there was some respect for them, if you like. You know, they remove the clothes and lay them down gently side by side as a kind of, some kind of respect to the dead bodies. Um, you know, so that the, the, there's a kind of irrational thinking there. You know, also where the, the, the four were the worst injuries were found is almost as if they'd tried to make a, a den for them to keep them warm rather than say, an attempt at the four of them terminal burrowing, you know, at the, right, at the right. very end of their lives. It's possible, you know. Again, there's no hard and fast, you know, sort of, this is definitely what happened. Right. Everything's open. Exactly, exactly. Now, the diving into the theories now, uh, I guess the mainstream, the one I heard recently, uh, somehow I stumbled upon it, probably after reading the book, I was sort of just doing a, an internet dive just to read all everything I could, kind of, and yeah, yeah. you know, the, the, the skeptical lot—they seem to just blame it on a straight-up avalanche, um, which to me just doesn't really—it just seems like such a lazy way of of getting out of the whole story, which doesn't really add up a lot of the uh, the, the issues. But but I sh- we should tackle that one first because that seems to be the most mainstream reason that people give. So why, what are your thoughts on the avalanche theory? Well, I don't believe it's an avalanche. I don't think that's got anything to do with it because apart from anything else, they were, they were 900 feet from the top of the mountain. So you wouldn't have been able to, you know, there wouldn't have been sort of, I don't know, like they were at the foot of Everest. Yeah. And there was, you know, five miles of snow built up above them. They were nearly at the top. Uh, with the slope where they were was a very gentle slope. It was 18 to 20 degrees, you know, and uh, an avalanche needs to be at a much steeper angle than that before it'll move. You, I mean, you can actually get slabs of snow which which can move, but, you know, it, it doesn't, again, it doesn't add up. All the tent poles were still standing, you know, if it was a genuine avalanche, and because that's one of the theories is they were, some of them were hit by, you know, a wall of snow, which, as I say, is extremely unlikely given the angle, um, you know, of the slope. The, but you, know, you wouldn't expect ten poles to be still standing. Mm. If ribs were going to be crushed, then, you know, surely a, a ten pole is going to be able to withstand that kind of force. And But all the, all the poles were still standing on the tent. Um, 
you know, is it possible they heard what they thought was an avalanche? You know, they were all pretty clued up. There was still a bit of light when they when they pitched their tent. They must have seen they weren't far from the top. You'd think they'd have used their experience to say, well, you know, we're near the top. Well, there won't be much of an avalanche. And even if they started running away from the tent, I mean, it was a mile away. You're not going to run, I don't think, anyway, for a mile. Surely at some point, if nothing's caught up with you, you think, well, I'll stop and turn around and have a look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, you would, wouldn't you? No, I mean, yeah, um, I was just saying that to myself. Well, yeah. Something would have to be really, really terrifying for me to run a mile. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you'd be, I mean, apart from anything, you know, you, you'd surely hear it. Hmm. You know, because an avalanche makes a rumbling noise. It, it, it comes back also, though, to this... Um, thing about, you know, everybody has their pet theory. If you talk to a mountaineer, it's an avalanche, you know, without a doubt, because, you know, with all the greatest respect to this survival guy that I was with, great bloke, you know, but his opinion is it's an avalanche and that's it, because he's actually been in an avalanche and survived it, but he said, well, I know what it's like, you know, which is fair enough, but there's a, it's not an area known for avalanches, um, you know, that's the other thing about it, is it's the, 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 the northern Urals are not steep mountains, you know, it's it's not like you need, um, you know, sort of sheer rock faces and all this. You, you can walk it as long as you're reasonably fit, you know, all right, snow is a different thing. You've got to be a lot fitter to be able to make your way through deep snow. But the actual mountains themselves are pretty gentle in mountaineering terms. Yeah. So it's not an area known for avalanches. Okay. Now, this kind of just came into my head here as we were talking today. I didn't even think about it when we were reading the book. But the final, I keep calling them the final four, but the final four folks who were uh, discovered, they had the most gruesome injuries, but also they were found a few months later. Is it possible that in the in the transport of these found bodies that the injuries could have occurred then to the dead bodies? Because maybe they found them a couple months later and they were like, Let's get these the hell out of here. We need them quick to wherever. Or they didn't care as much because uh, it had been two months, so the less care was given to the bodies and thus the injuries. Is that possible? Well, yeah, I must admit. It's the first time I've heard of that. Um, it's certainly possible, but uh, the thing is the cracked ribs were in a direct, you know, on both uh, Zolotarev and Luda. They were in a, a straight line, and it's odd that both of them had exactly the same injuries. You know, you'd... You know, I'm not discounting what you say there. Um, she had a her, her nose though had been smashed right into her face. Mm. Well, there's um, yeah, it could be two things going on at once in a sense. It could be. Uh, I guess what I'm thinking is maybe they just found them and they just sort of half uh, uh, yeah, threw them yeah, on yeah, 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 yeah. I hear what you're saying there. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's um. But then you you come back to why were the four of them separate? You know, uh, why well, why weren't they with the rest of them? You know, it's this splitting up that doesn't really make sense. Hmm. But, but yes, yeah, no, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, as I say, it might be something I'll take up when I go over. And, yeah, you because, should. Uh... I mean, there's still members of the search party left. But, I mean, you need to be, I don't know, for cracked ribs, I suppose, uh, you know, their clothing on. You'd need to, two of them would have needed to have had their ribs hit whatever they hit, but they're exactly the same location, if you like, because they had a line of the, the crack was in a straight line as if something had hit them very hard. I mean, also, what the autopsy said about them was that they looked as if they'd been in a car accident, uh. 
I mean, you don't necessarily look as if you've been in a car accident just by somebody chucking you on a lorry, I wouldn't have thought. But, um, but yeah, it's it's um, certainly worth looking at. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, like I said, it just kind of came to me as we were talking, but it's like, yeah. we talked about sort of the negligence of the uh, of the investigation in the first place, or uh, the, you know, the lack of, uh, of, uh, of keeping sort of a clean crime scene, then you wonder maybe maybe there were other mistakes that happened that were attributing to the incident itself. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worth thinking about. Yeah, it is. There is only one superpower in the world, led by the greatest leader in the world, Vladimir Putin. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. How did they conclude the case, so to speak, uh, in Russia? How did the authorities sort of conclude it all? How, well, uh, yeah, well you see, that's that's the other very strange thing about it, because the remaining four bodies weren't found for two months, hmm. or almost to the day from the the, the 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 last of the original group, if you like, uh, was Rustam, and uh, they found his body on the fifth of March, and it, uh, it, the remaining bodies were found almost exactly two months later, um, and. Once those four bodies were found, that was it. The uh, Lev Ivanov was told to wrap up the case. Yeah. And you'd think, well, they've got horrendous injuries. Shouldn't that be the start of the case? But no, it was, that's it. You know, they're, they're being found now. Um, irrespective of the terrible injuries, which are inexplicable, um, the case is closed. Yeah. So, uh, which to me really does stink. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we can get into sort of the politics of all this uh, as it goes down and, and over the ensuing generations and how, yeah. you know, changes in the Soviet Union. So, you know, we can kind of knock out some of these that are just ridiculous in a sense, like animal attack. They, just, they weren't attacked by a bear because we have no sign of anything like that on them at all. No. And uh, It seems like the infighting idea, while... I'm sure there may have been infighting. I just don't see how that could possibly cause what went down. Um, you know, it's not like you're, it's not like you're, you get into a fight with somebody at a bar and you go home. This is like, yeah. you kind of have to deal with, <laughs> deal with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it, it, there's talk that there was a fight in two groups, if you like. Um, well, you know, but would you walk a mile away from your shelter to, to have a punch up? Hmm. Uh, and even if you'd had a punch-up in the tent, would you slash your way out of it? You know, it would imply that everybody had gone mad, wouldn't it? Yeah. Whereas if a, if it's a fight, it's usually between two people, uh, maybe three. You know, it's not like uh, somebody drew a line in the middle of the tent and said, right, we're going to kick the hell out of you now. You know, it, it, it doesn't really, I mean, it's it's possibly plausible but there's a lot of things don't add up about it you know you you wouldn't run away and you know even if you were in the middle of a bloody fight you'd think if you were running down the hill think i've got nothing on my feet it's minus 26 and if i stay out here i'm going to die um you know there doesn't seem to be it, it doesn't seem to add up yeah somewhere between point one and a mile away uh, i think you'd realize yeah. that you've usually yeah, cooler absolutely. heads would prevail well, you would, yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd think, start thinking very quickly. I would think. <laughs> yeah. um, 
So a lot of the natural ideas just don't seem, they just don't seem to explain what happened. So then we get into, then we have to get into sort of the, there was some kind of outside force that, that affected them. Um, yeah. And this, that's when we really get into the really, as it gets, just goes from the mundane to the strange. And, um, the one I think that seems to have the most, that people seem to really get behind is that they were somehow killed accidentally or, or saw something they shouldn't have. You know, that they, that they, that they fell, you know, fell under the, in a bad way, uh, by the Soviet government in some way, or Soviet military. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's the line I prefer to go down. I mean, the, the, the Soviet military have got, you know, previous form on that. Um, you know, it, it's not like a, a conspiracy, if you like. I mean, accidents do happen, and, and it seems to me that, in the Soviet Union, it's, well, you know, what, what's your problem? Uh, it's an accident, so why are you making a big fuss about it? But having said that, they don't particularly want it broadcast as an accident. You know, it, it's, uh, you're being on, and there's still quite a strong line of thinking. You're being unpatriotic by attacking and criticizing the military who are there to look after us you know, to protect us from the capitalists and the outside world. So, you know, and it was an accident, so why are you making a fuss? And and that's quite a strong line of thinking with many people. Um, I mean, I, I, I put a bit in the book, I don't know if you read about the uh, anthrax outbreak in 1979, and that, that, there's a... a, a, a place called Compound 19 where 5,000 people were working uh, military and they were, uh, there was an outbreak of um, anthrax, uh, I think nearly 100 people died and what had happened was that uh, some, a, fil- a filter had been left off um, the machinery and uh, basically the anthrax spores got blown out in, into the atmosphere but it was blowing away from the city and even so, you know, near enough a hundred people died. If it had been blowing the other way, we could have run into thousands. Hmm. Uh, but it's been denied virtually to this day. And the KGB, um, I mean, there's, uh, there was an American team went in in 1992 to investigate it. Uh, at the time, Yeltsin was in charge and, um, they were, you know, they were allowed to interview people and, uh, what, what the authorities were saying, it was they had eaten contaminated meat, but it was proved beyond doubt that it was inhaled, which meant it was anthrax spores, yeah. which means it was a bi- biological warfare, which, you know, uh, Russia's, uh, well, the Soviet Union was a signatory to. Um, so they were breaking the terms of the uh, biological warfare agreement, so that's why, if you like, there was a big cover-up over it. The KGB went to all the hospitals, seized all the medical records uh, of the people that had died and basically had new records issued saying that it was contaminated meat. So they're quite capable of, you know, doing, you know, you might say, why did they do that? Well, they did. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And all the records pertaining to it were destroyed in 1990 by order of the Council of Ministers. But it's, um, I mean, to me, it's uh, there's two reasons for it. It's, uh, it's, it's, um, you know, what I was saying about the patriotism is our military are trying to look after us while I criticize them. And the other one is nobody likes to admit they've made a mistake. Exactly. So they would want to cover it up. And the, it, the, yeah. the key part of a lot of this too is, uh, you can kind of, kind of to just keep knocking out 
possible ideas. You know, it would be one thing if we found them and they were they had bullet wounds in their heads or something like that. I mean, the the the, the way they died seems to be uh, something happened to them and then they died as a result. It wasn't like anyone killed them um, yeah, per yeah, se. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you, you know. Uh, the trouble is, once you start going down that route, then you start to doubt everything. Because I mentioned the uh, medical records, the autopsies in the anthrax case. I mean, that was 1979. I mean, that's 20 years later. They were all altered. So then you could say, well, this is back in 1959 when anything was possible. Um, so who's to say that the autopsies, you know, I mean, we've got quite detailed autopsies, but who's to say that's all a load of rubbish? That's true. That's true. You know, and it, and it is quite possible, um, you know, there, there's talk of injuries to the fists of Igor Dyatlov, you know, to, to, uh, to both his fists, and um, Rustam, he had an injury to his right fist, you know, the, the, the kind of injuries that you get in a fist bite. And you think, well, that seems weird. You know, it's as if the two of them had been fighting. But who's to say that that's the truth? You know, it, uh, it could be that the the doctor who performed the autopsy it was one doctor, and they just said, well, make it as complicated as you can, and you know, put in anything you like, basically, to to stir it up and you know, hide hide whatever the real reason was. Yeah. Well, one of the key things too, I think, that comes up uh, that bears mentioning. Is that, uh, and I think, I, I don't know if it was Lev uh, Ivanov or not, you'll know for sure, but the, the, one of the lead investigators, one of the first things they did was to bring equipment, uh, uh, Geiger counter up. And, yeah, that's and, right, and yeah, it, it was out, Lev Ivanov, yeah. It stood out as something very unorthodox to do. It is, well, I mean, that's not part of, you know, you, you think about Lev Ivanov, he's, he's come up from the big city, he's a city policeman, he's used to dealing with drunks and, you know, men beating their wives up and, you know, the odd murder and what have you, and he, he's chucked out into the middle of nowhere, and he's been given a, a Geiger counter, you know, that's that's not, he was just an ordinary policeman, you know, at the end of the day, you know, an ordinary policeman even now don't have Geiger counters, so that, that's a peculiarity straight away, which suggests, obviously, that there's some radiation involved somewhere. Now, it would be interesting to find out, do we know, did he ever tell anyone or explain what led him to want that piece of equipment in the first place at that scene? Well, no, I mean, he he was just given the Geiger counter and told to measure for radioactivity in the area. Um, the thing with the Soviet system is you do what you're told. Right, right. You don't, you don't ask questions, but... Um, you know, I, well, if it'd be me, I'd be wondering why the hell, well, I'd know why, why I'd been given it, but it, it sort of leads you to think that, you know, obviously there's, uh, there's something up there that the authorities think, you know, may, may have contributed to it. Why else would you be investigating the amount of radioactivity in the area? But what does radioactivity come from? You know, to me, it's nuclear weapons. Or something nuclear. Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of, yeah, clearly some well, of... Well, radiation of some right, kind. Right, that's you kind know, of what I was thinking, too. Yeah, maybe they... Yeah. yeah. So we try to, like, look at some of these other ones here. Uh, the, the one that, the other, you know, the... Uh, we'll get back into sort of your, the, the, the school of thought that you focus on here, which is that this was some kind of, uh, let's say, Soviet military government deal gone wrong. 
But we should talk about the UFO aspect, because that's the one that, uh, you know, anyone who's into UFOs, they always gravitate towards that right away. And uh, it can't be dismissed. I mean, that's the... No, no, it can be. It, it can be. You see, the, the thing, I was just going to come on to that, the... The, the 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 light orbs in the area you, you cannot explain those as rockets because it wasn't on missile lanes it was miles and miles away from missile lanes uh, I mean they had two rockets that they were researching at the time you know or, or testing if you like the R5 and the R7 uh, and, and they weren't anywhere near that the the R5s used to be fired from a place called Kapustin Yar. Uh, and that had a range of, it was a medium range, it was coming up to 750 miles. The, the, you know, the, the, the northern Urals is, is actually slightly beyond the range of these things, and it's totally in the wrong direction. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make sense, you know. The R7 was fired uh, over towards Kamchatka. Uh, you know, uh, people have said, oh, uh, you know, I mean, some people have said that it was uh, missiles being fired up to, uh, there's an island up to, you know, in the Arctic Circle where they actually used to test, uh, you know, uh, nuclear bombs rather than the missiles, but um, it, it, it still wasn't on the route, you know, it, it's nowhere near it. Um, so these lights that people are seeing are almost inexplicable. What are they? And the thing is they've been seen by too many people to dismiss them. You know, they, they, they've been seen by the military, they, they've been seen by the Mansi. There was a group to the south of the Dyatlov group that, the, 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 I think, I can't remember now, they were 50 kilometers south of the Dyatlov group. They'd seen the lights, and, and they've been seen over a period of months, and, and there's almost no explanation for them. You know, people say, oh, UFO, you're crazy, and all this sort of but you start coming into an area where there, there is almost no explanation for it. Mm. The only the problem and the challenge of the UFO theory is you're trying to explain a mystery with a mystery, so you're still just going Absolutely, in yeah. circles yeah. in that sense. So it's hard to really, you know, I mean, like I said, it bears mentioning, but I don't know what we can really do with it. Um, yeah, but but the it's there. The thing is, there's some, you know, you, it can't be explained away. You can't, mm. you, you know, they say weather phenomena. Well, you know, it's dark and it's cloudy. It's not the northern lights. They're, they're actually white orbs. You know, they're yeah. not rockets. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not weather balloons. They're, you know, it's something else. So yes, it's a mystery, but there's something there. That's that's the point about them, and nobody can explain them. Hmm. And and they were seen that night uh, where they were. Right, right. So it's very, uh, like I said, it's compelling. But at the end of the day, you're not really sure what to do with it because uh, no, that's know, that's the problem. It's one of the but, few. But no, nobody, nobody's been seems to have been able to answer that. I think part of the reason why it's still compelling, too, is it's one of the few theories that might explain just sort of the strange behavior in a sense, too. You know, it's like yeah. extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Like an yeah. extraordinary yeah. incident <laughs> could be... Yeah, well, yeah, be no, I mean, uh, I'm event. with you 100% on that, you know, and I don't dismiss it either. You know, people say, oh, you know, a load of nonsense. I say, well, you explain it then. You, you give me the explanation as to what it is. You know, it's... Uh, there's something there, and it's been seen by far too many people. Just dismiss, you know, you can't say, "Well, he's a crackpot," but you, say, you think, "Well, there's members of the tribe have seen it, the military have seen it, weather forecasters have seen it, you know, the climbers have seen it, you know, everybody's seen them, but nobody can explain them." Right. Uh, it's not like it's not like somebody came out of a bar in Ivdel, you know, one night had 
you know, two bottles of vodka, and he saw a white light whizzing overhead, and everybody said, well, you had too much to drink last night, my friend, you know, but right, it wasn't right. like that, you know, it, it's definitely something there that nobody can give a satisfactory explanation for. It hangs over the whole case in a lot of ways. It does, it literally does. aspect of it. Um, yeah. well, then the other one people like really like, like to uh, jump on, because it's so strange and exciting, it's just like a Yeti-type thing, but I just find yeah. that, you know, I just, I, I don't know, if, if the Yeti's sort of just this animal, I don't know if people would really freak out as much and, and walk a mile away to get away from a Yeti that might have, <laughs> but I don't know. Well, and again, I mean, I know there's pictures of footprints and all the rest of it, but, you know, I would have thought uh, that the, uh, you know, the search parties probably would have made more of that. Mm, exactly, yeah, yeah. If there were Yeti tracks all over the place, I think that we would have yeah. heard about it by now. Yeah. That's another uh, one we can kind of cross off. Now, one you sort of just uh, mentioned in the book that was sort of percolating at the time of your writing, uh, and that one must have been about two years ago now, that's the the stuff that Paul Stonehill was working on, Lair of the Golden Woman. What is this whole yes. thing? Because it was only yeah. briefly mentioned. Well, it's his bag, if you like, and um, I don't know. I actually haven't been in touch with him recently, but... Uh, <laughs> Excuse me. Um, that's something I haven't actually seen any more on that. Okay. So, um, but the, you know, if you like the, I, I think the story of that involves, if you like, supernatural powers. You know, mm. uh, but I, I'll have to be honest with you. I can't comment on it because okay. I haven't seen any more on it. In fact, you reminded me. I'll need to get in touch with him and see if the if he's, you know, published what he was going to publish. Yeah, it sounds intriguing. Sounds intriguing, but also yeah. kind of like uh, again, we're getting into the explain a mystery with a mystery, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's based on an old legend up there, anyway. The one thing I wanted to mention too uh, that came from another theory, which is that the that they were murdered or uh, fell victim to uh, escaped gulag prisoners, which is kind of like what is this? Is you know we're really getting into some strange realms here. Uh, it seems to me that's kind of unlikely, but because there was nine nine folks there uh, at the camp, so we'd have to have some really sinister prisoners to uh, cause all this to go down. Oh well, the, the, there's plenty of sinister pr prisoners in the gulags. Um, yeah, the thing is, there was a gulag not far away, and some of the prisoners were involved in the search for them uh, in Ivdel, you know, but. There was two types of prisoners in the gulags. There was the criminals and there was the politicals. Um, and once he'd been in one of those gulags for a while, you know, all standards of decent behavior went out of the window. Um, but it doesn't make sense in that apparently the criminals, who could be extremely violent, headed back to where they came from, to the towns where they came from and the cities, because... They knew people there, you know, that they'd get back into a network, if you like. Yeah. There's people that could look after them, you know. Security was pretty tight in Russia, but, you know, they could get papers and, you know, they'd know people whose backs they could scratch and who could do them favors in return. Uh, the politicals were sort of shunned by everybody, but they were a peculiar class because for them they'd need to just get out of Russia um, you know, uh, it seems unlikely they'd disappear into the middle of the mountains in winter. The thing is, if you were going to do that, um, you'd need to be equipped for it. Um, and after the, you know, there was a lot of stuff left knives, axes, lights, right. things like that, where you think, well, 
if you're an escape prisoner, you've got nothing apart from the rags you're standing up in. Wouldn't you at least take a knife or an axe exactly. or, you know, lights so you could see your way in the dark, which it would have been? That doesn't make a lot of sense. There would have been clothes, sleeping bags, you know, a lot of stuff that would have been useful to somebody on the run. Hmm. And it would have needed a pretty big group of them, you know, nine people all... You know, okay, there was two females there, but they were pretty fit and pretty strong. And, you know, and a bloke who had been, you know, decorated in the Second World War for close combat fighting. So I don't think, you know, he, he would have gone quietly, if you like. So it would have needed a pretty powerful group to have over overcome them all, right. killed them all. And, again, there would have been scenes of a, you know, I would have thought a major fight. Exactly. The fact that they didn't take anything is really key, too, because... Uh, well, that's you it. Yeah, no, that, that is the key, key part. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I thought it was really interesting. This is a completely different side tangent, but I wanted to mention it for the record. Uh, this this should be a movie someday. This yeah. uh, this story... You mentioned how sometimes these prisoners would escape from the from the gulag, and they'd... Yeah. Before they escape, they would sort of, like, bring another dude into their plan... A, yeah. fat, a fat guy that, that yeah. they would plan on eating once they escaped yeah. from prison, yeah. which is like... They were called walking larders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> the idea was to to kill him, and, I mean, they, 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 they were starving. Um, a lot of these gulags are in the... I mean, Ivdel wasn't quite so bad because it was relatively near civilized... Well, not that near, but near enough, you know, I mean, uh, out in Kolyma, you know, in the Soviet Far East, you know, there's literally nothing for hundreds, of, you know, if not thousands of miles. Yeah. And I mean, in Ivdel was bad enough, but, you know, there's no food, you, you, you know, you're not going to kill a bear, are you, or a wolf, so, you, you know. You bring a patsy along. Well, yeah. why not bring a, a fat boy or a fat lady along with you and you just knock them over the head and then cook them? Oh, jeez, that's yeah. a... Yeah, like well, I said... Well, it's true enough. A, it, happened, it happened often enough that that was the nickname for them, Walking Larders. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a thriller or a horror movie I want to see, <laughs> yeah. Walking Larder. That's, uh, yeah. that's intense. So we've kind of we've kind of nailed down all the biggest uh, theories here, but then we're getting into now... You, you you do a great job in the book. So first you do all those sort of theories. Then you get into like that that has to. Then it gets into like a more complex interweaving of even more offsite or alternative sort of theories. Is that kind of where you fall personally as a researcher? Because you're talking about that, that that they probably fell victim to some kind of mishap uh, by the government or military. Um, so maybe in the cover up stages, they, 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 what we think we know about the Atlaw Pass may not even be at all what happened. They may have just orchestrated the whole scene that was later found. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the belief uh, by certainly some people and certainly the first person who looked at the files when he got hold of them. Um, you know, uh, there, was a, there was a navigator on a, a, an old Antonov that was flying over the area and he said he saw the tent with, you know, being the, he flew over the area um, two days before yes. the, the tent was found. He flew over it the day before and saw the tent there. With or two bodies tent. outside of it, right? Two bodies. Yeah, with two bodies, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, and he actually, Carpushin his name was, and uh, he said to his wife later, if anything happens to me, look after our son. You know, so, uh, he, he, you know, uh, I think he probably guessed there and then what was happening. Mm. That it was the, the the scene was being set, 
Um, and, you know, there's lots of small things, you know, like I say, they shouldn't even have been on that mountain. So, you know, why, why, why were they there? The, the actual tent itself wasn't set up correctly is a, is another criticism of it. And, uh, there was a flashlight found without any snow on it because, um, you know, it had been a couple of weeks before the search, the search had supposedly got there. And the tent had supposedly been there for a couple of weeks, and yet there was a tent uh, on top of the tent uh, was found uh, a flashlight without any snow on top of it, almost as if somebody chucked it there to make it look good. Right. The day before. Yeah. But everything else was had a covering of snow over it. Exactly. There's a lot of little details that make it very. Uh, you, yeah, very you small details. Yeah, the yeah. Chinese. The, the, they call them the chi- they were lanterns from China. The lantern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and the, the tent was put together the way they normally wouldn't do it. So, yeah, like someone right. outside yeah. of the party would have done it. That's a very yeah. strange part of it too. I mean, yeah. Uh, one other part that really stood out was that the. And you can clarify this a little bit or sort of flush it out, but the, the criminal investigation, uh, I guess from the files that we have now, says that it began on February 6th, even though yep. they weren't discovered until a couple of weeks after that. That's correct, yeah. But, but having said that, somebody has come up with a, an interesting theory. Uh, there, there's three calendars in use in uh, the Soviet time. There was actually a Soviet calendar and there was an older calendar, and this gentleman has put forward the view that whoever had opened the the case file had maybe put the older, you know, using an older calendar. It, it's, you know, I was a bit dubious about it myself, but, um, you know, it's something that was going to be discussed at the Dyatlov conference. Mm. Uh, whether I, I haven't had the full report on it yet, but um, that was one of the items they were going to discuss you know, so but it seems peculiar that you know if somebody's working in, um, you know, this would have been the prosecutor's office that would have done that. Uh, it it seems it would seem odd that one person's working to a, a different calendar to everybody else. Is it possible that they just backdated the investigation to when they think w- that when they think something might have happened? Do you know what I mean? Like, let's say they. Uh, yeah, well, again, that's a possibility. But you see, you'd only open a criminal investigation when you found something. Well, why would you backdate it? Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the general view of you know, so Yuri Konsevich at the Dyatlov Foundation. Um, you know, it, it's possible. It's possible it was a different calendar, but. Uh, it's more than likely that uh, so they, they they knew what had happened, you know, a week before because they'd have been dead by for nearly a week by that that date, and somebody just thought, well, we'd better start a criminal investigation, and you know, without thinking through all the permutations of, well, we're, they're not going to be found till the twenty first, you know, they'd open the the case file if you like, and nobody bothered checking the date after that. Um, and also, there, there's a case file number that's been referred to a couple of times, uh, because if you look at the file that's been released, there's no case number on it, and yet there's telegrams referring to a case number. And one of the things that's come out of the um, the latest conference uh, is that there is still a file that has not been released, um, and it's not going to be released for another... The, 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 there's two differing dates, 19 years, oh, God. 30 years. Oh, man. Well, and, but, you know, 
it seems to me with the Soviet Union and Russia today, uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm into military history of the Soviet Union, and there's, I think there's only one-third of um, the Soviet records being released on, on battles in the Second World War. Oh, wow. So if there's something that's been, you know, if there's something being hidden, if you like, or something being covered up, they're probably never going to release it. Yeah. You know, I mean, they can talk about it. I, I mean, I, like I say, when I go over, it's one of the things I'm going to be looking or discussing when I'm over there. But, you know, if if, if there is a cover-up of some kind, it looks like there is. And, and I, I believe that there is another file, but I just don't see it ever being released, especially if it shows somebody in a bad light you yeah. know, or, or something that they can't explain. Well, that's a good that's a good jumping point in a way to uh, we we talked a little bit about the UFO thing and uh, it, it bears noting I think that Lev Ivanov uh, it was insistent and he was one of the lead investigators he was insistent that it was UFOs which is really yeah. weird yeah uh, that yeah. someone with a, that sort of authority position on the case would take such a you know such a stark stance on what went down absolutely yep. Yeah, no, I mean, it was his view to, to, to his dying day that, the, that it was a UFO. But you, you see, I mean, he, he was the man investigating it all, and, uh, you know, if you like, he, he was the, the person who was in, uh, had all the facts at his command. You know, he, he saw everything, and, you know, he, he spoke to the witnesses, and uh, not witnesses, if you like, but you know what I mean, everybody yeah. that was closely involved in it, the search parties, you know, so... He was the one man, if you like, who who was best placed to form an opinion, and that was his opinion. Right. Uh, he al he also found a mark on a tree trunk that he, he said looked as if it had been a burn mark, as if it had been burned by a kind of a beam, you know, huh. a circular mark. So, you know, because that's one of the theories, you know, when you get into the UFO is the, the damage to the, the, you know, the mechanical damage to the bones. Uh, could have been caused by some kind of force, you know, whether it was an explosion or a, a beam. It wouldn't have been infrasound because infrasound doesn't cause mechanical damage. Yeah. But, but um, you know, it could have been a, a kind of a, a force beam or a, probably not a laser necessarily, but it, but there was a burn to this, so it's possible there may have been a laser of some kind. Hmm. It's It's really compelling stuff. I thought the... I thought Alexander uh, Gulikov's theory was pretty interesting, too. He sort of lays out this whole narrative, the scenario where the, uh, the, the, the Dyatlov group sort of fell victim to inadvertently the sort of this infighting amongst the Communist Party. Um, yeah. I thought yeah. that was really interesting just in the sense that uh, it ties in the strangeness of, of – uh, where is his name here? It ties in the strangeness of, of Zolotarev. And also, yeah. it kind of gives an explanation for what might have gone down. Didn't now you say there was another? Didn't I'm trying to think if Zoltarov had a camera that went missing. Uh, from yeah, well, he was wearing a camera. Yeah, he had a camera on. You can see it in the pictures of his body. But we never found that or got any. Uh, got that? <laughs> no, no. I mean, there are pictures from you know. I think there was a few cameras there, but the main pictures actually come from uh, Igor Dyatlov's camera. You know, all the ones you see, and, um, you know, I think, you know, there's a couple of theories about what Zolotarov was doing with his camera. Um, one of the theories being that he was to take a picture of, 
uh, you know, the, 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 whoever it was was using, uh, I can't remember if it's explained very well in the book, but one of the theories is uh, a couple of the higher-ranking military people in the Urals military district were using uh, helicopters, military helicopters, you know, and they shouldn't have been. He was trying to get a picture of it so he could discredit. It wasn't to discredit the... Um, the actual military bloke as such, it was to discredit the party boss yeah. in Moscow who was closely linked to him. Yeah. Because apparently when the, the Communist Party Congress was being held, all leave was cancelled, but there was, to, the, nobody, there was meant to be no movement of any military equipment. Um, and the story is that, you know, whoever the higher up in the military, because it's quite an important military district, the Ural military district, uh, the, the higher-ups there were using these helicopters for their own personal pleasure while the Communist Party Congress was on, uh, and he was meant to get the photographs of it that could be used to discredit, if you like, the party boss that they were associated with. It's a, it's a bit of a convoluted one, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's plausible. It's a fun one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, another peculiarity that kind of stood out to me that I wanted to ask you about was just for a little more information about they, I guess they found a store. I, I don't even know what the word is, really. Uh, they they, yeah, they, I mean, they hit some stuff for when they came back down the mountain yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, would, I wouldn't read too much into that because um, when I was over there, I was asking about that, and uh, I said, uh, you know, would they actually have done that? And apparently it's quite a normal thing if you, you're going... Uh, Especially on the last bit of your journey, you know, you, you leave the excess stuff when you're going to be doing a bit of steep climbing, which is what they were about to do. Yeah. You know, there, there was stuff left there. But when they did find it, um, Yuri Udin was saying there was items in there that they didn't, you know, that, that none of them had, which, you know, seems a bit strange because it would imply that whatever happened to them happened to them before they did that even. Yeah. See what I mean, you know, so it's as if somebody's saying, well, let's fake the rest of the journey. Right, right, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the yeah. That was the peculiar part, that it seemed like there, yeah. was, there were some yeah. things that were out of place in there that didn't add up either. Well, that doesn't add up, but, you know, the thing is, Tim, it comes back to this business of somebody, you know, a committee sitting down and saying, how complicated can we make this story? Right, right, exactly. Because straight away you think, well, that doesn't add up to the narrative of them you know, dying on the mountain, uh, you know, if there was stuff found, that uh, why would they leave a store when theoretically they were all okay and yet there was stuff found in there that none of them had? So it would imply that something had happened to them before and that, you know, it was made, being made to look as if the rest of the journey continued okay when it didn't. Mm. And, and you also run into the difficult task of, uh, you know, and again, with all due respect to Yuri Yudin, yeah, you know, we're, 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 we were really dependent upon him for that kind of information, and you just never know, you know, exactly. He would just well, I, I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm of the same opinion as you on that. You know, I, I think a lot was expected of him. You know, I, I mean, if I put myself, he, he said there was things they asked him. To, you know, after he got home, went back because of his uh, illness. You know, and he was asked to come in and go through the belongings, and he said he found stuff that. You know, he didn't think any anybody, any of them were carrying. But, you know, it's almost as if he's expected to remember every single detail right. of what nine other people were doing and what they were carrying. I mean, 
I, I just know from my own experience, even as say a younger bloke, if I, I'd been out with nine people on a hiker, so I, I wouldn't remember what they were wearing. I wouldn't remember what everybody was carrying. I, I, th- I think you know he's had to try and live up to the legend, if you like. I mean, he's dead now, but uh, I, I think an awful lot was expected of him. Right, right. So it's, uh, and uh, I think it could be forgiven for maybe misremembering some of it because I, I, I just don't see how you know you could remember everything. You know, I just don't think you could. Now we sort of uh, we we've talked about the possibility that this was all sort of orchestrated after the fact, and and the uh, you seem to think you seem to put the strongest uh, weight to the idea that they befell some kind of like uh, accident, maybe by the military of some kind. Do you yeah. have? I guess flesh out sort of in general what your I wouldn't say theory because like you said you're really your mind's open to a whole bunch of stuff but if you, if somebody put a gun to your head right now and was like what happened Keith uh, well you know, I, I, I would I your, would your say sort of take at this point yeah I I would say that uh, I mean uh, there was a crewman from um, you know the the Russians uh, they still fly them the old bear bombers. There was a crewman uh, from uh, one of two bear bombers that took off that that evening uh, from a base near Kiev. I mean, that was part of the Soviet Union, and it's, it's in Ukraine now. But there was a, a bomber base there, um, and two squadrons of these bears were based there. And um, the, the, this crewman had been in touch with the foundation to say he was on uh, one of the crew that night that flew over the area, dropping... Um, parachute mines, which, uh, whether or not, you know, you, you, it's a hell of a coincidence, really, isn't it? You know, you think, well, these things explode a couple of hundred feet off the ground, and um, they do incredible damage because they're so powerful. But for people, uh, it, it's the blast, the shock of the, the, the blast wave that kills you. I mean, obviously, if you're too close to it, you, you'll be blown to pieces. But even some distance away, the, the actual shock wave, you know, your your lungs explode and your eardrums burst, and you know, from the the, the pressure. Yeah. Um, and that could have happened, you know. And we have a, you know, we have this man who says he was a member of the crew that night, and it just seems, you know, quite, you know, it may not have happened, but it just seems quite a coincidence that. Two aircraft did fly over the place that night and dropped, you know, the, the, these air mines. Yeah. And then, the, you know, and then if, then the government would want to cover it up if they, you know, they wouldn't want to well, I, 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 kill yeah. all these people I, I, by accident. I think out of embarrassment, you know, the 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 the, um, the expedition had been organized in, in, you know, in honor of the party congress in Moscow. So, you know, the the the. They have this attitude that, um, you know, bad things don't, never really happened. Uh, you know, air crashes were never reported in the press unless they absolutely had to be. Yeah. You know, they're, they're just bad news. I mean, bad news isn't welcome anywhere, but it really wasn't welcome in the Soviet Union, you know, and you've got nine uh, students, if you like, leaving out, maybe leave out Zolotara, but you've got nine young people in the prime of their lives all good party members, they're doing the hike in honor of the Communist Party Congress, and here's a, 
a plane from the, their own military blowing them to bloody pieces, you know, or maybe not blowing them, but killing them, you know. Right. Um, and uh, you think, well, what kind of a government <laughs> is it that allows that sort of thing to happen when everybody's supposed to be happy and no bad things happen? Yeah. You know, it, it was always very much like that, I think, uh, with the Soviet Union. Um, and I, I tend to discount some of the military stuff, though, because... You know, there's talk of secret weapons. I mean, the, the, I think the old Soviets were into anything that, you know, could be used as a secret weapon. But it's it's hard to think what you could take up into the mountains to test. Right. Uh, you know, which is why I, I lean towards an aircraft. People talk about missiles, but, you know, I know enough about that to say, well, you know, it's not really on the route, but certainly aircraft were, uh, you could say maybe ground forces, and that's a possibility. But you see, a lot of ground weapons tend to be quite close, uh, you know, even rockets and shells, um, you know, they, they tend to blow people to pieces. Right, right. Uh, right, you know, so, and, and they didn't, you know, I mean, we've seen pictures of all the bodies, there was, all the limbs were there, you know, so they didn't look like there was any blast damage to them, that, yeah. you know, so if you're very close to uh, shrapnel, you know, it'll tear great chunks out of you or tear your arm off, there was none of that. Right, exactly, yeah. These, yeah. Uh, these folks seem to die, with the exception of the intense internal injuries to the four of them, they yeah. seem to die in fairly natural ways. They did, yeah. You know, like I said, there's no bullet holes in their head, or they weren't choked to death, or stabbed, or no, anything no, like that. no. It, it, um, well, they all look as a, you know, on the face of it, as if they right. froze to death. But that doesn't make a lot of sense either. But somebody um, with a bit of a medical background was telling me uh, an interesting thing about the autopsies because um, Igor Dyatlov supposedly uh, froze to death. He died of hypothermia. And um, he had a, a liter of urine in his bladder. Mm, yeah, and, and apparently that, yeah. one of the um, when you're dying of hypothermia, apparently all your muscles relax and the urine flows out of your body, which it hadn't with him, and it didn't with some one of the other ones had uh, quite a, a fair amount. I mean, a liter of urine is you're, you're bursting to go. And, and uh, it seems strange that his death is given as hypothermia, but one of the symptoms of hypothermia would be an empty bladder. Yeah, you mentioned on the uh, on your website there that uh, that, yeah. that brings up the possibility of tetanus somehow. Uh. Well, that's yeah, that's been put forward because in the abandoned geologist settlement, they they were um, a number of them got scratches. For, you know, it's, it's mentioned in the diary that uh, you know they were pulling off old planks and you know there was old rusty nails on them and apparently tetanus, uh, you know, the onset of tetanus is quickened in cold temperatures, and that's a possibility. You know, it's, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the number of, some of them had been scratched by them, but then, you know, it would imply that they'd all been scratched. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what, like what, one more got tetanus and went crazy and ran away. It's still, yeah. not every, still doesn't add up to the behavior, what we think. No, it doesn't, yeah, no. That's the, no. I guess that's what makes it so, uh, so compelling, I mean... Well, it is. There's not one single theory. If you take all the... If you take everything as a fact, as you look at it, there's not one single thing that stands up on its own. Right. There really isn't. It's mystifying. Now, I I hasten to even uh, to even ask about this, because it came from Wikipedia, but I was sort of looking at the Wikipedia to refresh my memory uh, this morning, and I noticed uh, that 
one of the points in there says that, uh, and the citation is from some Russian newspaper that doesn't even have the article up anymore, so it seems pretty shaky at best as it is, but it said uh, yeah. that some of the hikers had gray slash white hair and showed signs of premature aging. Is that true? Well, yeah, apparently they did. Um, Yuri Konsevich was actually at the funeral. He was 12 years old at the time. You know, they're saying there was orange skin and the hair didn't look right. Well, you know, apparently that is true. Weird. Uh, and again, I don't really know where you can give us an explanation for it. Um, you know, the bodies were, from what you can see of them, they're starting to shrivel up and, okay, the the cold preserves it. But if you've ever seen pictures of bodies from, you know, old Antarctic explorers or people who died in the Antarctic or the Arctic, uh, their bodies take on a kind of a, a shriveled look. But, you know, uh, the, uh, the orange tan to the skin, you know, there's no real explanation for it. Unless the funeral director felt so bad that they froze to death, he overcompensated and gave him a tan. <laughs> well, anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I feel like, uh, we, I mean, you and I could talk, Keith, all day about the various theories. We've covered most of them. The book is outstanding, Mountain of the Dead, the Dyatlov Pass incident. Folks, get this. This is a must-have for your library, folks, because uh, this is a, uh, you know, just a, just an essential esoteric case, and you and you really did a great job uh, putting it all together. Now, tell me about what, much. what was going on. Oh, no problem, man. I, I loved it. I've been yeah. I've been chomping at the bit to talk to you for the last couple of weeks since yeah. I read the book. It's uh, it's amazing stuff. And I'll talk a little bit. You said that we, you know, we could have, uh, we were going to talk like last week, but uh, circumstances put that off. But that was also the anniversary, and there's an event held. I guess talk a little bit about maybe to bring us up to the present day. You know, it remains a mystery. What's been going on since then? They, they they shut the place down for three years, and then they kind of yeah, uh, commemorated, yeah. uh, you know, the passing of the Dyatlov group, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's odd that, I mean, the show, okay, I can understand, you know, something similar happened in the U.S. or over here, uh, that they, you know, they might want to shut it down in case, you know, something dreadful had happened, but it seems peculiar. It's almost as if they wanted to... <laughs> additional time to clear up whatever had happened, you know. Yeah. But every year the the Diatlov Foundation organizes um, a kind of a conference or symposium in Ekaterinburg. Uh, the latest one, a couple of interesting things come, uh, came out of it. I haven't had the full report yet, but uh, they were going to discuss that discrepancy about the calendars and the dates because that was actually a gentleman in uh, Germany that had contacted me about that. But um, uh, somebody gave a talk there. Um, He's been examining the last photograph with a microscope, you know, because Yuri Konsevich has the negatives from Igor Dyatlov's camera, and you'll probably recall that the last very last photo looks like a, an orb. Yeah, I think you might know the one I'm talking about. Yes, yes. And there's like a, 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 a white object floating down, and he thinks it's a rocket. Um, you know, he gives his explanation in the, um, you know, huh. in his talk about it. Um, but he's used quite a powerful microscope to inspect it. Now, I, I dispute the rocket theory, you know, but that's one of the things that came up. And uh, there was also talk about the missing file. Um, 
there, there's uh, somebody's been looking, not Yuri can say if it's somebody else has been trying to find out more about it, but he's been told that it won't be released. Yeah. So we, there is definitely another file. Um, the trouble is, you know, if they're not going to release it, there's not a lot we can do, but at least there is a bit more. But what it does look like is that something is not right, and that's why it won't be released. <laughs> I mean, if it, if it was um if it was another file that said yes, they they all ran out of the tent and fell over a ravine, you think, well, what's there to hide? Right. That's, right. That, that, that's the one thing that gets me about this mystery always is um, if you talk to people who were in the search party or you know people at lower levels, they'll tell you anything you want to hear. Once you start getting to you know, start going up the scale, higher up, you know, a chief prosecutor or uh, people in the military, nobody will talk to you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've actually managed to track down some people in the military. Uh, there was an air base not that far away, you know, because that's, again, one of the theories. But uh, they won't talk about military matters. And the trouble is, the way Russia's going at the moment, you know, there's a new law came in not that long ago so that anybody discussing military matters can be found guilty of treason. Oh, God. Yeah, even if you're talking about, I don't know, a type of gun that was used in 1928. If it was used by the, you know, the Red Army and you discuss it. um, I mean, that's just an example, an extreme example, but you can be... Uh, you know, uh, in court for uh, charged with treason. Oh my God! Discussing well, it's a catch-all thing, you see. Yeah, yeah. If you discussed a gun that was used in 1928, I doubt whether anybody would be particularly bothered. But if you started discussing, um, you know, other slightly more contentious subjects like what the military higher ups were doing in the Urals military district in 1959. You know, you might find yourself in trouble. And I'll give you another example. Um, I, I said to you that I was uh, quite interested in, you know, well, more than quite, and I have a deep interest in Soviet military matters. There's um, a book on the uh, written by three Russians on uh, the the Soviet strategic nuclear forces, and it's up to it's up to about five years ago. Um, you can actually buy it on Amazon at the moment, but every copy in Russia has been seized and pulped. Oh, wow. And, and one of the three people that wrote it died in a car accident. So, uh, oh, boy. Know. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to make it seem too much like a conspiracy or whatever, but it's, it's a place where, you know, bad things can happen to you if you, you know, you, you get, uh, dig too deep in certain things. Right, right. And it's been so long now that it could be a situation where most of the people who even knew what went down don't even, they're dead or retired or... Well, yeah, well, that's the other thing, Tim. They're dying off now. The the, the people that were... Yeah, I mean, Yuri Konsevich is just a, you know, he's a bit older than me, but uh, he was 12 years old when he went to the funeral. Um, you know, there's not that much longer now. You yeah. Know, a lot of the people, the you know, the the people in the search parties, they're all old men now, and they're not going to be around much longer. And when they go, that's you know, your last links to the Yuri Yudin instead, not that long ago. So you know, the people that were uh, one of the 
people that I did want to see, and he actually died when I was there, although I don't read any, anything into that because he was in poor health, was uh, Vladimir uh, Korotayev. He, he was a young um, investigator at the time working for the prosecutor, and he, he uh, I, I saw an interview he was in uh, where he was asked about the whole thing, and he said there was something not right because he he was saying, well, you know, he was looking at the evidence saying this doesn't add up, and he was told to shut his mouth and go on with his job. Yeah. But he, he died when I was there on my last visit, you know, and uh, all, all these people are dying now, and all that you'll be left with is, is a file that nobody will release. Right, and people are already conditioned probably uh, to not ask about it either, you know. Well, they, they, they won't wait and try and get it because they know better. Well, Exactly, yeah, yeah. So and, we're and in a real And it's getting point. worse, not better. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I guess you're heading back over there. Tell me a little bit about that. I'll let you get going soon, I promise. But I want to know, uh, I, I would love to, you know, reading the book, it's kind of like you want to go there and experience it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, um, so tell me, you've the thing done is, uh, I want to meet Janadi uh, Kisilov. He, he was the first person to really go through it and say, this is rubbish, you know, this yeah. official version. Um, I, I want to meet him. I want to interview him. Um, I'm hoping, uh, and I don't know whether it'll come off to meet the chief of police in uh, Ekaterinburg. That's uh, the person doing Levy Vanov's job now. See if he'll give me an interview and also somebody in the Urals military district. But, you know, whether or not they'll talk or grant an interview, I don't know. Um, but I want to do that, and then I want to head up to the pass. For, it'll take. We're going to go up there for a two-week trip, uh, myself and uh, Yuri Konsevich. Yeah, that's what, what I, I wanted to ask do. you about. What's it? What's yeah. it like? Just on a, you know, just on a gut, on a on a visceral level. What's it like being at at the Atlaw Pass? What's it like? Well, it's it's uh, the thing is, I I've never been there in the snow. And uh, I don't think I'm <laughs> you don't plan to think, either, right? <laughs> I think no, but I, I think to do it properly, you, you should be there the night they died, and then you'll get a deeper understanding of it. But oh, I, don't, I don't think my, my mangy old carcass is up to it. But it's such a, a weird experience, you know, to to stand on the spot where they died. But what I want to do is. Um, in a new book is to use far more photographs of the area itself and to literally walk it through in photographs from what, you know, what happened to say this is where the tent was and then photograph down to the, the tree and then to where the, the bodies were found and try and kind of give a panorama of it, you know, so that it's almost as if you're there as well. Yeah. You know, so the reader has a... Because, you know, you, you, I don't think the photographs that, uh, you know, that we've got at the moment are, um, you know, really give a good... You know, they're obviously the... the well, they're good photographs because they're, they're the ones that, the, you know, from the actual party itself. But to see, you know, try and give an idea of it to people today. And the other thing I want to do, if I can, is I want to take a size seismograph up with me, a seismic detector. Yeah. Uh, you can get small ones, but uh, I've got problems. There's a company not far away that I'm going to ask them, you know, a bit of publicity for them if I can use one of them, because they do quite small ones that will fit, you know, quite comfortably into your suitcase. But I've got to get that into Russia, so. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I want to sort of see if I can take some seismographic readings up there. And see if there's sort of any un unusual activity yeah. or interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
Is it like part of me? Like I said, I just part of me wants to wants to go there to the Outlaw Pass and just experience it. I don't know if I would want to do it on the anniversary either, but that, that's an even that's a, that's another layer of uh, chillingness to it. But it it is it really? How does it feel to be like in the middle of nowhere like that? Just kind of off. Well, off, it, it, it's um, you know, it, like I say, it's difficult to put it into words because it, it literally is the middle of nowhere. And I was thinking, you know, if I got lost. I really would be, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. know how the hell I'd get out of it, <laughs> to be honest. And don't forget in the summer, you know, although we've discounted wolves and bears, there's some pretty big bears up there as well. I mean, although people tend to dismiss the, the worry of them. I grew up in Africa and I've got a, a very healthy respect for large animals that can eat you, you know. Uh, right, just because they didn't get the folks in the Dyatlov group doesn't mean they won't get you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, they tend to eat berries, you know, um, and they tend to avoid humans, but uh, I still have quite a healthy respect for them, you know. Absolutely. But, it, but it's just an, it's a really weird feeling to, you know, go along the same path that they went along, you know, um, d- d- digressing a little bit. uh I wrote a book um, on three lighthouse men that disappeared. Uh, that came out last year. Yeah, I was just about uh, to ask you about that. Nice. Yeah, well, I, I was up on the Flannan Islands, the place they disappeared from, and I stood on the very spot where they probably disappeared from, and nothing can beat, actually. Be, you know, you can't put it into words to be there. Right. You know, you, 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 no book, no words ever can ever describe the feeling. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like I said, if I hit the lottery tomorrow and money was no object, maybe then I would. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You and me both. Well, we'd probably pass each other jetting around the world going to all these places. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but the other book, just to, just to plug it here so folks know about it, The Lighthouse, The Mystery of uh, Eileen Moore. Light- uh, Elan, 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 the Elan. Mystery of the Elan Moore. It's actually the Flannan Isles is probably the easiest. It's a group of islands called the Flannan Isles, and the main island is called Elan Moore. But uh, in uh, nine, December 1900, three men, the three lighthouse keepers, just disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, they say it was a giant wave, but when you investigate it, you know, the, uh, it's anything but a giant wave. But, no, but the, again, nobody knows what happened to them. Crazy stuff, crazy yeah, stuff. When, when the relief went out, you know, they the found the, the beds had been made, the meal, the meal had been eaten, and uh, everything was washed and put away, but no men anywhere on the whole place, just disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, aside from the trip back to uh, Russia to do more research, what's next for you? What are you working on uh, for 2015? Uh, Well, I've got another book coming. Uh, Again, I I like my mysteries uh, about two girls that disappeared in Rome Hmm. uh, within 40 days of each other uh, back in 1983, uh, both with links to the Vatican. Vatican. Uh, Quite quite a meaty story. Nice. There's any one of half of the, you know, you think first, you think 15-year-old girls, sexual predator, but, uh, you know, there's a lot more to that, to a really, and nobody's covered it yet, really interesting story. Nice, nice. So what's uh, what's the title of that, and when can we get uh, Well, I haven't even thought of a title yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm just getting started on it. Okay. I'm just heading down to Rome in the next couple of weeks to meet the, the policeman in charge of the case. So, um, but that, that was many, you know, again, what's that, 83, 20, 30 years ago now. Yeah, and then a possible sequel to Mountain of the Dead, follow-up maybe? Oh, yeah, most definitely, yep. yep. Nice. That's, that's, 
But, you know, for a sequel, you've got to come up with something, you know. That's why I'm trying to right, right. see if I can get to interview people higher up. And all I want them to do is say, tell me off the record what your view is. But I, I want to hear it from somebody, you know, in a position of authority. But, you know, whether whether or not they'll talk, I don't know. I'm just hoping. Yeah, yeah. Well, have you seen, uh, before I let you go, have you seen, what's been the reaction to the book? Because this, this, I know there was another book that came out around the same time. It's kind of, I guess. Yeah, Donny Arcade, he did a very good job. Uh, no, but, it's, you know, it's bad form to knock somebody else's work, but he did a great job. Hmm. Um, but he, he sticks to one theory. Right, um, right. You know, which I'm not going to go into here. I don't, I don't happen to agree with it, but, you know, Donnie's done a, a good job on it. And, um, no, he, he wrote a very, very uh, readable book. And uh, it, it's to do with, you know, why it's called about the Dead Mountain and, and what have you. Um, like I say, I don't agree with that particular theory. And the trouble is, I think if you... I mean, I have my own pet theory, but I think if you say this is my theory and nothing else, I'm not interested in anything else, I think you're closing your mind to possibilities, you know, because right. uh, I think unless you keep an open mind, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. Exactly, exactly. I guess yeah. that's just the question, in a sense, was just have you seen, just based on the book, I'm sure, uh, because... And, and the other book and all the media appearances, it seems like there's definitely a lot more interest in this story all of a sudden in the last few years. Well, I, I'm hoping, uh, to be honest with you, Tim, that there'll, there'll be another film on it because uh, have you seen the film that, uh, what's his name? Oh, God, they did Die Hard. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, saw him. I have it on my network. Rennie Harlan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't like it, I have to be honest, but uh, I'd like to see a film based on the actual story itself rather than what he did, um, you know, with whatever ending they decide on, because I think it'd be a great story. Yeah. Uh, sorry, a great film, I mean, um, but, uh, I, but I think there's room there for another film. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, very sure, you know, and I'm hoping there will be one very soon, and I'll ju I just hope they do a better job with it because, uh, I mean, I didn't mind Cliffhanger, but I don't think Rennie Harlan did a very good job of... Uh, the, you know that that particular story. Yeah, it's Devil's Pass. It's on Netflix. Yeah, that's it. I haven't yeah, got a chance yeah. to watch it yet, but yeah, no, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. Um, yeah, well, I'd like to see more about it, and uh, I'm glad we finally got a chance to talk about it here on. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. Well, I'm sorry that uh, you know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I managed to uh, get through without having a cough and splutter all the way. But I, if you'd have heard me last week, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have been able to string two words together. Oh, no, it all worked out. Yep. It all worked out yep. for the best. Yep. And uh, I should give a shout-out here to Crystal, uh, one of the BOA Audio listeners who uh, lives in the area. We actually went out for a drink, and she was saying, you got to talk about this Datloff Pass thing. Datloff Pass, you got to look into this thing. That was like three or four years ago. So uh, I oh, finally got around to doing it on the show, yep. and a lot of people have emailed about it. And like I said, I didn't want to do the show until I could be well-informed about the case and talk about it with someone who, who knew what they were talking about. And so... And those things all came together thanks to Mountain of the Dead, the Dyatlov Pass incident. Outstanding book, Keith. I gotta, I gotta take my hat off to you, man. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I really, really loved it. And like I said, it makes you feel like you're the eleventh man on the uh, on the fated Dyatlov expedition. So, uh, just thank you very much. Great, great stuff. I'm gonna keep an eye out for the uh, the new books, and hopefully, yep. we'll get I'll you back you, on I'll the keep show. you informed. Absolutely, absolutely, because I would love to have you back on BOA Audio anytime because uh, you do great work and, and really uh, tremendous stuff. So please keep us posted, and yep. thank you so much. Yep. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you for having me on.